Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Uh, we're going to be taking a little bit of a different approach to the sermon today, and that is that I'm going to be uh, kind of approaching this from a denominational perspective. Um, we at New Life are part of a denomination. It's called the Presbyterian Church in America, or PCA. That's different than PCUSA, Presbyterian Church United States in America, two entirely different groups, although both called Presbyterians. Um, PCUSA, a much larger denomination than ours, the PCA, we're much smaller, um, but we have kind of different ways of approaching things, and so I always like to make that distinction. Um, and I don't really talk about this very much, our affiliation with the PCA as a denomination. And the reason why is because we are at New Life here more committed to the gospel than we are to being Presbyterian. Uh, it's more important to us that you become Christians than that you become Presbyterian. Uh, if you're a Christian and not Presbyterian, we're okay with that. But if you're a Presbyterian and not Christian, that's a problem, and we want to address that. Um, so you don't hear us talking a lot about our denominational affiliation here, and yet at the same time, I want it to be clear that we do not apologize for being part of the PCA or being part of a denomination. And there's kind of a, a negative impression, I think, that a lot of people have about denominations these days, and... Um, we are glad to be part of a denomination. We think it's a good thing to be part of a denomination. We are accountable to other churches. We receive instruction and accountability and support from the other churches in our denomination. And we think it's biblical to be part of a denomination. If you look at Acts 15 and 16, I think there's some biblical support for how it is important to be connected to other churches. And we're also happy to be part of the PCA as the particular denomination that we belong to. The PCA is a denomination committed to the, to the gospel, committed to the Great Commission, and committed to the authority of the scriptures. And so uh, it's a good thing. And the PCA is, I think, generally healthy. I mean, there's no perfect denomination, and every denomination has its issues and struggles. But uh, the PCA has been experiencing growth, which has been wonderful. Over the last five years, we've added 68 churches and 19,000 members over the last five years in the PCA. And that's pretty good, really, when you consider the, the way the Christian church in general seems to be on the decline in the West and in the United States, yet the PCA has seen uh, some significant growth. So we're thankful for that. Every year, the PCA has what's called the General Assembly. It's a, kind of an annual business meeting of the denomination. Most denominations have these. We call ours the General Assembly, and that happened last month in Mobile, Alabama. And <clears throat> at this year's General Assembly, there was a very significant resolution passed, and it's being called what you can see here on the screen, Pursuing Racial Reconciliation and the Advancement of the Gospel. Uh, that's a picture of the General Assembly. Actually, I'm not sure if that's from this year's General Assembly or not, but that just kind of gives you an idea of what it looks like. Uh, the General Assembly is a meeting of pastors and ruling elders from PCA churches 
and um, they're voting on some issue here in this particular picture. But one thing they voted in the affirmative last month was this resolution about pursuing racial reconciliation. And in this resolution, there was some very honest and frank acknowledgement of past sins that have taken place in the Presbyterian Church um, with regard to racism in particular. Now, there have been some documents passed in the past that had to do with racism that existed in the time of the Civil War. This document passed last month had more to do with the problem of racism in the Presbyterian Church during the Civil Rights era in the 1950s and 1960s. And so, um, this is what we're gonna be talking about here today, and in particular, and the reason why I'm doing this today, in part, is because of what the resolution exhorts congregations in our denomination to do. So let me just read this. It says, uh, the General Assembly urges the congregations and presbyteries of the PCA to make this resolution known to their members in order that they may prayerfully confess their own racial sins as led by the Spirit and strive toward racial, racial reconciliation for the advancement of the gospel. So, in deference to our denomination, which has urged us to address this issue and to make this resolution known, that's what we're going to do today. And it so happens that I think this fits so well with the passage that we're about to read here in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Uh, this is a passage about Christian love. It's not a passage necessarily about racism, but it is a passage about Christian love. And something that's very important to remember about the book of Romans is that the church in Rome to whom Paul was writing this letter was a mixed race, multiracial church. There were Jews and Gentiles, and maybe more ethnicities than that, but at the very least there were Jews and Gentiles in the church at Rome. Remember, we went through chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, and Paul was devoting his time in those chapters to how it is that God's promises could be made to the Jews and they at the same time could be rejecting Jesus as Savior. And it seems that some of the Gentiles in the Roman church were beginning to get a little uppity about the fact that so many Gentiles were coming to Jesus when so many Jews weren't. And it was creating some tension. And so there were racial tensions in the church of Rome. And so it's entirely appropriate for us to read chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, with racial tension in mind. Now, this passage applies much more broadly than that. I, I understand that. But I want us to think about the issue of racial reconciliation in particular as we read this passage on Christian love. So let's do that. If you would stand, please. I'm going to read Romans 12, 9 through 21, and we're going to see what this passage has to say to us about genuine love in a multi-racial church. Romans 12, starting with verse 9. <clears throat> Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. With good. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we give praise to you as a God who has loved us so well. And so now, O oh Lord, we desire to love others, even those different than ourselves. And so, Lord, would you, by your spirit, use this passage to give us wisdom, to give us deep hearts of compassion and love and grace, to give us instruction about how we, as your people in this broken, messed up world, how we can take the lead in reaching out to all minorities and all races so that we together can be unified around the gospel for all the world to see and that the whole world would know that you are God. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has reconciled us to himself. And Lord, let our lives reflect that good news. So Father, bless this now as we look to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, we're just going to go through this. I'm just going to start in verse 9 and just kind of go right down through this and uh, see what this text has to say to us and try to apply it again specifically with the uh, racial reconciliation issue in mind and then we'll look at our denomination's response in a little more detail and then our congregation's response to this and then individual responses, how we can respond as individuals here at New Life. So let's just look at this text. Um, the first thing that needs to be said to kind of put this <clears throat> in context is that Paul is telling us to love one another. If you look back at chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. So this is all in view of the mercy of God that has already been extended to us as his people. And in fact, a better way to sum it up would be in 1 John, where we see the very definition of love being presented. In this is love, not that we've loved God. That's not where it begins, our love for God. It's that he loved us. He took the initiative. He pursued us in his love. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is to be the one who turned away the wrath and anger of God that Eric was talking about a moment ago. And then John says, if God so loved us in that way, then we also ought to love one another. And so that's kind of the launching pad now for these verses and verses 9 through 21. And 
whatever it is that we say about racial reconciliation and however it is we approach it, we want to make sure that what we do is in response to the Word of God, in response to scriptures. We don't want to do things just because they're trendy or because they happen to fall in line with our particular political beliefs. What we want to make sure is that however we approach this, it is based, supported in the Word of God. And so that's why I'm beginning this way, by just going through this passage before we say anything further. Let's just see what the scriptures have to say. So if we look at verse 9, here's kind of the controlling verse for, I think, the rest of the chapter. Let love be genuine. What does that mean? It means let love be real. Let love, let love be sincere. That is, as you love, Avoid the tendency to just give the appearance of loving on the outside, to appear to be nice and kind and concerned on the outside, while inside in your heart you are nursing resentment and anger and fear and perhaps prejudice. Paul is calling on us to love sincerely, but not just to love sincerely. He goes on to say what this involves. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So this is very significant here in verse 9. That part of loving in a genuine way is to also abhor or to hate evil. And so there's a sense in which you cannot love rightly unless you hate rightly. True biblical love involves a degree of hate. You can see in any case, generally, when you love someone or something, you also are against whatever it is that threatens the object of your love. That's part of what it is to love well. And if we are prepared, and I think we are, to acknowledge that racism is an evil, then we ought to abhor it. And we haven't properly loved the minorities in our midst, or African Americans in particular, unless we hate that which has been a threat to them, that which has oppressed them, that which has caused their lives to be difficult. So love must be sincere, and we are called to hate that which is evil. In verse 10, he goes on, love one another with brotherly affection. The word there that's used is the word for Philadelphia, and we know about Philadelphia as the city of brotherly love. Well, that's from the Greek word that is used here. And so Paul is calling on us in a multiracial church, Jews and Gentiles, and today, whites, blacks, and Egyptians, and Asians, to love one another with brotherly love. What that suggests is that the ties and bonds that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ, the spiritual bonds that we enjoy are more important, more primary, and more significant than the racial ties that we have. What that means is that a white Christian has more in common with a black Christian than a white person has with a non-Christian or than a black person has with a non-Christian black person. We must be careful about elevating race to a place that's higher than the spiritual bonds that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what's in view here in this command to love one another 
with a brotherly affection. He goes on, outdo one another in showing honor. We should consider this to be almost kind of a competition where we're trying to exceed what others are doing for us by outdoing them and showing blessing to them. To show honor to one another is simply to consider them precious, to consider them something to be cherished, to consider them as valuable in the sight of God. And so we outdo one another in showing honor. There are some people who have questioned even on our denomination, whether an apology of the sort that is in this resolution is necessary for a number of reasons. That question has been raised. And I think this verse alone is biblical precedent for acknowledging those racial sins that have been committed. It's a way of outdoing one another and showing honor. What a great way to show honor to our African-American brothers and sisters and to minorities in general than to do whatever we can to acknowledge our wrongdoing in their lives and in the past. So Paul goes on in verses 11 and 12. And here it's almost like he's anticipating that we're going to be frustrated and discouraged as we pursue racial reconciliation that it's going to be hard work, and it does feel that way, doesn't it? I mean, even as you look at what's going on in our nation, it seems like we've made a couple steps forward here, but then it seems like lately we've taken five or ten steps back, and there's just this constant feeling, I think, of frustration in our nation about how to make progress in this area. And it's almost like Paul anticipates this, and he says, don't be slothful, don't be lazy, don't give up in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope. Christians, you have a hope. Jesus is coming again. He's going to make all things right. Justice will be done. That day is coming. We live in hope. We can rejoice in that, knowing that that's going to happen. We don't turn cynical. We don't give up. We rejoice in hope. We're patient in the tribulation that we experience, and certainly in our nation there is significant tribulation and we seek to be constant in prayer. Maybe the world's going to give up on this. Maybe the world's going to turn negative and cynical and hopeless, but not us, not Christians. We don't give up. We've made a lot of mistakes. We've messed up in a lot of ways, but we're going to keep trying. That's what Paul's telling us to do. And then in verse 13, here's where he says, basically, put your money where your mouth is. If you're going to love others, in your midst, well then, contribute to their needs. Be willing to part with your resources. Be willing to inconvenience yourself in giving to them and show hospitality. Show hospitality. That word for hospitality is very interesting. It's philoxenia, kind of similar to brotherly love is philodelphia, Philadelphia, love of brothers. The word for hospitality is philoxenia, love of strangers. That's what that word technically means. The love of strangers. The love of those different than you. Certainly there's nothing wrong with opening your home to friends and family members, but an essential part of biblical hospitality is opening, opening your home to people you don't know and to people who are different than you. 
So verses 9 through 13, there you go. There's Paul kind of talking about a proactive love that should be shown by Christians. And starting in verse 14, Paul begins to talk about what it's like to respond then to those who don't treat us so well. And he kind of repeats this phrase several times, uh, the same general idea in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Chapter, uh, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You get the idea here? It's kind of the same general principle, which is that no matter how much we've been persecuted or oppressed or wronged, that we should not take vengeance into our own hands, that we should not allow ourselves to get out of control so that we end up perpetrating other forms of evil in response to the evil that's been heaped upon us. And the reason is pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, if we're really concerned about the amount of evil in the world, and evil is perpetrated to respond with evil only increases the amount of evil in in the world. And so Paul is saying that if we respond with goodness to the evil, not only have we, by the power of God's Spirit, restrained the evil of our own hearts, but perhaps that action, by the power of God's Spirit, can be used to restrain the evil in our persecutors and oppressors. Never repay evil for evil. There's a great example of this. I think I've shared this before, but one of my favorite movies is To Kill a Mockingbird. And there's a Gregory Peck who plays Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch is an attorney and he represents an African-American man who's wrongly accused of a crime. And uh, <clears throat> so happens in the movie that uh, this wrongly accused man is, is killed and it's a tragic thing. And um, Atticus Finch is Finch is at the home of this man, and uh, his parents and friends and family are all mourning, and there's Atticus weeping with those who weep, and there's a a character in the movie called Bob Ewell, and he's kind of this angry, racist guy, and um, he's been opposed to what Atticus Finch has been doing throughout this movie and representing this African-American, and So Atticus is at this house, and Bob Ewell comes up and says, you know, bring Atticus Finch out here. So they go get Atticus, and he comes down the steps and stands right in front of Bob Ewell, and they're just kind of looking at each other. And Bob Ewell doesn't say anything. He just spits in his face. Huge hocker right in his face. And Atticus Finch is standing here, and he goes, takes one strong step right in Bob Ewell's direction. And you're just getting ready for him to pull back that fist and just pummel it right into his head. And part of us are thinking, I want him to do that. Our hearts are just wanting this guy to get his. But here's Atticus Finch, and he just gathers himself, very calmly pulls out a handkerchief, wipes off the side of his face, puts the handkerchief back in, and walks right past him. 
It's very interesting, too, in the movie that they show Atticus Finch's son is in a car, and he's watching this whole thing, observing his father doing exactly what Paul is saying here, to not become overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. So whatever side of this issue we're on, this is the command to us. But then Paul goes on here and he says, speaking of weeping with those who weep, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I think a lot of us probably don't exactly know what to do with the racial tensions that exist in our nation right now. We want to do something, we recognize the problem, but what do we do? And there's a certain amount of frustration that I think some of us are feeling about that. Here, here's, at the very least, here's something you can do. You can weep with those who weep. You can identify with the pain and the grief that certain people are experiencing in our nation as a result of the injustices that they perceive and whether we understand that or identify fully with it, the very least that we can do in obedience to what God is calling us to do in this passage is to weep with them, to do what we can to enter into their grief and their pain. That's what love does. John Stott says this in a commentary on this passage. Love never stands aloof from other people's joys or pains. Love identifies with them sings with them and suffers with them. Love enters deeply into their experiences and their emotions, their laughter and their tears. There are a lot of tears being shed in the African-American community today. And the least we can do as their brothers and sisters and as God's redeemed people is to weep with them. Let's just weep with them. That's a good starting point. Now, one of the ways that some of us might be processing this whole thing is just to say, you know what, it's not my problem. I haven't really engaged in racism. Um, I don't really know that many minorities. And so one way that some people deal with this is just avoidance, just kind of ignoring it. But you know what, I don't think Paul allows us to do that either. Verse 16. What does he say? Live in harmony with one another. <clears throat> Do not be haughty. Associate with the lowly. And verse 18 as well. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. What Paul is saying is you got to get together with one another. You can't ignore each other. You've you got to pursue them. You, you have to reach out. They might not be pursuing you, but you've got to pursue them. And as much as it depends on you, and of course there's a limit to what you can do, but as much as it depends on you, do what you can to pursue and reach out to others. They might not be coming to you, but you can go to them. Live peaceably with one another. Now we get to the end of this passage, and we get to what's probably the most difficult part of it, because of what Paul is saying here about not avenging yourselves but leaving it to the wrath of God. And I would just guess that this would have to be a very hard thing for someone to hear who has been oppressed and persecuted over and over and over again. You mean to say I just have to just let it happen? You mean I just have to enable 
the injustice to continue by just remaining silent and not doing anything in response to the grief that I've suffered? I, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. Because go back to verse 9, the controlling verse, kind of the launching pad verse here, let love be genuine, but look, abhor what is evil. There is a place for us to fight against evil, to hate it, to speak against it, to challenge it, to confront it. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says that we are to expose the unfruitful deeds of darkness. So we can resist injustice and speak against oppression without necessarily taking vengeance into our own hands. That there, there's a distinction there to be made, I think, that is very important and certainly is something that our Lord Jesus did. Um, First Peter tells us this. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, his heavenly Father. He himself bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There is no one who has experienced more injustice and oppression than our Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect person on whose lips was found no deceit, who did nothing wrong, and yet was executed unjustly and in the most humiliating and excruciating way. And we see here that what Jesus did is he entrusted himself to his Father who vindicated him by raising him from the dead. And that's the idea that Paul has here. Don't take vengeance. It belongs to God. He will repay. But that doesn't mean we can't abhor evil, confront it, speak out against it, and seek to make proper changes in our world. Here's a guy named Jamar Tisby. I think summed it up very well. We fight for justice now because we know that's what Jesus wants, yet we can also endure injustice because we know that's what Jesus did for us. So, that's the passage. Three responses to this. Denominational response. I've already shared with you uh, a little bit about this. How is the PCA uh, dealing with this? The, the sad truth is that there is a significant amount of racism in the history of the Presbyterian Church. Some of our pastors in the past and seminary leaders have attempted to use the Bible to support segregation to oppose civil rights on the grounds that it was a communist effort, to oppose interracial marriage. There's a church in our denomination, First Presbyterian in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, They've made public the session minutes of some of their meetings in the past where the elders of that church have made decisions, for instance, in 1960, to appoint the deacons to stand at the doors of the church and make sure that no African Americans come in the building in 1960. As late as 1988, First Presbyterian Church, in the minutes of the elders, recorded that there were numerous complaints among the congregation about African American children in their daycare. 
1988. And so, thankfully, this church has come forward and has publicly acknowledged these sins, confessed them, and repented of them. Uh, <clears throat> a lot more could be said here. We don't have time, but I can direct you to some resources if you're interested in knowing more. Right now, only 1% of the pastors in the PCA are African American, only 1%. But let me just, I'm just going to read this to you, okay, this resolution I want you to hear the heart of the denomination in response to these things. You can find this online, but I'm, I'm going to read you this. It says, Therefore, be it resolved that the 44th General Assembly of the PCA does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the Civil Rights era, and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, such as the segregation of worshipers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, the exclusion of churches or elders from membership in the presbyteries on the basis of race, the teaching that the Bible sanctions racial segregation and discourages interracial marriage, the participation in and defense of white supremacist organizations, and the failure to live out the gospel imperative to uh, that love does no wrong to a neighbor. And be it further resolved that this General Assembly does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of past failures to love brothers and sisters from minority cultures. So, I mean, I think that just gets to what we're talking about here. There's a command to us in this passage to love one another. And you might be thinking, I haven't participated and these kinds of racist things, and maybe you haven't, but the question is, have you loved minorities in the way that this passage is calling us to do? Repent of past failures to love brothers and sisters from minority cultures in accordance with what the gospel requires, as well as failures to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning, <coughs> excuse me, concerning racial sins and personal bigotry and failing to learn to do good, seek justice, and correct oppression. So, I'm grateful that the Lord has led our denomination to do this. My only question is, why did it take so long? It's almost embarrassing that it took us until 2016 to do this. More to be said there. But let's move on. Congregational response. How are we as a church able to respond? You've heard about our church plant. We are seeking to plant a congregation in downtown Muncie. Josh Hollowell is our church planning apprentice. Hope for Muncie is the name of that project. You see the website link there. You can go there to learn more about uh, what that future church is about. But uh, the intent is to make this a multi-racial, multi-ethnic church. And trusting God to do what he wants with this, but that's the hope. That's the desire uh, in response to the things that we've been talking about here today. Also, um, the denomination has set up something called the PCA Unity Fund. And this is um, a fund that will provide for minorities who want to go to seminary to pursue pastoral ministry or missionary work, and also for those minorities who want to go to General Assembly every year where decisions about the direction of the, of the denomination are made. Uh, it's not cheap to go there. 
And so the Unity Fund is providing monies for minorities for those purposes and for others. And so you can contribute to that, writing a check to Mission to North America. That's a kind of a, a smaller kind of ministry within the PCA. Uh, just making so. If you need that address later, not getting it right now, I can uh, get that. Um, I, I'm guessing, again, a lot of us are just thinking, what, what can we do? Where do I begin? How do I start? I think probably one of the best things to do is to educate yourself. And uh, I would suggest that you check out this website. It's called the Reformed African American Network, and there's the web link there. Um, these are very theologically grounded, thoughtful uh, African American men who are wrestling with not just racial reconciliation issues, but that's one of the main things they've been dealing with lately. And you can go there, and, and there's lots to read, lots of video, lots of audio, uh, so you can kind of help understand better their perspective. But I, I'm going to suggest, just as a way of personal application, that, that what you try to do, no matter where you are on this issue, is to seek out somebody with whom you know you disagree on race issues. You know, maybe you're a person who you just think, what's the problem? I thought we took care of this. I mean, we have an African-American in the White House. What's the problem? And you're confused. You don't get it. Find somebody who's outraged by what's going on racially and talk to that person. And if you're a person who's just outraged and you're just convinced that, that our whole system is inherently racist at its very core and you just can't understand how anybody can see it any differently, I, I would challenge you too. Go find someone who disagrees with you. And just go out for lunch or go out for coffee and commit yourself to not arguing but to listening. Ask questions. Let the person talk and hear them out and learn. Learn. What does it say in the passage here? It says, do not be conceited. It says, do not be wise in your own eyes. If you, have, if you think you have this thing figured out and you think you don't have anything to learn about this, you're conceited. You're conceited. And you need to humble yourself and listen to others. And I'm saying that to both sides of this debate. Listen to others. So we're going to conclude here by just doing what the General Assembly has exhorted us to do. It says that we're urged to make this resolution known to members in order that they may prayerfully confess their own racial sins as led by the Spirit. And so we're just going to take a couple minutes now. We're just going to be quiet. I want you to reflect on this passage that we've just heard. I want you to think about any ways that you might have contributed to the racial problems, any ways that you might have failed to love as you should, any ways that you've sought to stand aloof and just have wanted to just kind of rid yourself of the issue. Just let the Spirit work. Um, I'm not suggesting that this is the end and that we fix this just because we have this resolution. This is just the beginning. It's a lot of work left to be done, but here's a place we can start by humbling ourselves before God. And so let's do that. Let's just quiet our hearts and ask for him to lead us to confession and repentance.